Hi, Andy. Hi, Victoria. Today, we have a very interesting, integrative family physician, Tanmeet Sethi. She is a medical doctor who helps her patients find joy, even in the most difficult of circumstances. And I understand she also is a practitioner or enthusiast for psychedelic medicine. Well, let's get her on. Dr. Tanmeet Sethi is an integrative family physician and a clinical associate professor at the University of Washington. She is an activist, the author of Joy is My Justice, and a TEDx speaker. Tanmeet has dedicated herself to caring for marginalized patients in Seattle's refugee, uninsured, and homeless populations, as well as in global communities traumatized by man-made and natural disasters. Welcome, Tanmeet. Thank you, Victoria. Hi, Andy. It's so good to be here. Well, we're excited to have this conversation with you. And I want to start with your book. You wrote, You Are Not Broken. The systems that we live in are joy is an innate human right accessible to all, regardless of our financial status, race, or gender. Can you please expand on that idea of joy as an innate human right? Well, I think what really I'm going at with that is this idea that joy is accessible to all of us and that our mental health conversation does not always imply that. We talk about happiness as a construct and the hacks to happiness and what you can do to be happier. And happiness is beautiful. I I take it any day of the week. But joy is different. Joy is an embodied experience, not a cognitive construct. It actually stems from the same deep well as our capacity for pain as our capacity for love, meaning, connection. And joy actually is something that's accessible to all of us, even in or after trauma, suffering, or through oppression. Whereas the constructs of our life are not always happy. And yet the problem I see in my mental health practice with patients and with myself, I will add, (laughs) is that if you are not happy because your constructs are not happy, you feel broken, that you're not able to be good enough or feel good enough or be resilient enough. But the truth is we all can access joy. It was always in us and we all can have it. No one can take it away. How often are we supposed to feel it? (laughs) Yeah, this is the thing, Andy, I think is that a lot of people confuse joy with feeling happy all the time, Mm -hmm. right? So people will say, well, how can I feel joy if I'm sad or I'm grieving or I'm such? And what I would offer as a construct is that joy is actually the ability to sit with all that life has given us. And it is a sense of being open and alive to our life and not trying to escape it, turn away from it, distract ourselves from it. That doesn't always feel good, but it's what I like to uh, give a comparison to people is I think it's the same way that we can be at a funeral and be deeply grieving someone we love. And in the same moment, laugh with others about that person, about some memory of them or how they irritated us (laughs) or, you know, and that joy and pain live so close to each other. And I think when we numb ourselves to our pain, we also numb ourselves to our joy. 
Andy, you've written about this as well. In Spontaneous Happiness, you wrote, ceaseless joy is neither possible nor desirable. It's normal for moods to vary, but your ups and downs should balance each other. And then you basically say the goal should be things like serenity, calm, a sense of contentment. So how do you balance that with what Tanmeet just said? (laughs) Well, first of all, in that book, I said that happiness is not something to strive for. Mm -hmm. The the word happy comes from an old Norse root for luck or fortune. And if you pin your high emotions on external circumstances, you're bound to be disappointed. And I think a much better thing to aim for is contentment, which is an inner sense of fulfillment and evenness rather than a temporary up. So I think that's the goal of many meditation practices and various philosophies that we'd like to be attain more contentment. If in the course of that, you have moments of joy, I think that's terrific. Joy is, I think, a stronger word than contentment. And Tanmi, do you actually say that it can be a practice? So how do we practice so that we have more joy in our life as opposed to dependent on luck. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, this is a lot of, Andy, this will resonate with a lot of what we learned in our fellowship as well, is joy practice actually stems from a sense of how we regulate our nervous systems as well. So it's really about finding some sense of safety and ease and calm in our body again. And that's what I would really offer is that as Andy was saying, happiness is this luck or fortune. It's it's cognitive evaluation. Whereas if we can really get into our body and feel our breath, feel movement, feel different practices in our body, we actually can practice joy because there are ways when we calm and regulate our nervous system where we're actually giving our body and our minds the message, you're okay, you're safe right now. Even if the world doesn't feel safe or if life isn't completely okay, you're okay right now in this moment. I'm giving you this moment of nurturing. I'm giving myself that moment. And so there is a way that we practice that through our nervous system. There's also other many tools I talk about in the book, such as gratitude or self-compassion, where what we're doing in the neuroscience has caught up to show how this works in our body and our brain, but we're really giving ourselves that companionship, that nurturing, that looking for the good in us and the good in the world, even when life is not good. So I would have to say one of the ways that I experience joy is dancing. And I, for many years now, since my children grew up, interestingly enough, (laughs) have taken dance classes. And I am aware when I'm in these classes that I'm often smiling and I'm often really feeling joyous. So I would say that's a practice for me. And I'm wondering for both of you, do you have a personal joy practice? Or Andy, I can I, I just can imagine your dogs might be part of it. <laughs> dogs are part of it. Also plants and flowers ah, and producing mm-hmm. them. They give me much joy. I'd yeah. say cooking also. Mm-hmm. And I think of joyful experience a lot in the company of others mm-hmm. with getting together with friends and laughing and telling stories and whatever, doing things together. Mm. Yeah. And um, for me, actually, Victoria, dancing is my number one. So it is the fastest way I can move my body and my mind to Mm -hmm. somewhere else. There's no doubt. In the data and the neuroscience, the researchers even show that as we contract our muscles with any movements, we Mm -hmm. produce anti-inflammatory cytokines. 
and they call them hope molecules. And I actually think that's so empowering to think that we can feel down, we can feel sad, and we can move our body and create hope that there might be another moment lying ahead of us. And so movement is a really big one for me. My children joke that they say that my most joyful place would be if I were swimming in a warm ocean while I was cooking and dancing in the ocean. (laughs) All right. So if dancing and let's say more globally movement is number one, what's number two, three, four, and five? (laughs) I would say laughter, especially laughter in the company of others brings me great joy. Music also and singing, which I don't get to do as much as I used to, but singing with a group brings me great joy. Oh, that's really cool. And I think what's interesting, Andy, is that every one of the things that we've all named so far really are about connection, Mm -hmm. right? And their connection to people, to loved ones, to nature, to food, to this world around us. And this, this sense that all these practices connect us deeper to others and to ourselves and to help us find a sense of belonging in the world. So it's really, there's commonality in all of it. For me, two, three, four, and five would be things like (laughs) breath is actually really big for me. I'm actually quite an anxious person. That's my inclination is to get anxious and think that maybe something bad will happen. And so I really use my breath often to really bring myself into a different place in my body. And I think metaphorically, the breath helps me remember that every moment is a new moment. I can start over. This breath is new and so is this moment. Every moment doesn't have to be just like the last one. And then gratitude is very big for me. I used to poo-poo gratitude, I'll be honest. (laughs) It's gotten bad PR, but it's kind of taken as this like contrived kind of false positivity, kind of too soft, as people will say. And what I will tell you is that with my son's disease and my, for those listening don't know, I have a child with a fatal illness and gratitude was really one of the biggest ways that I found healing and joy through this really daily tragedy that I face. So Mm. gratitude helped me understand that is how you turn towards your life. When you say, thank you or appreciate what is in front of you rather than what you wish you had, all of a sudden you're looking at your life and living your life instead of wanting it to be different. So gratitude really helped me reclaim power and joy and feel like the sadness that was stripped and the power that was stripped with this disease gave it back to me. So I really, gratitude is very big for me too. Mm. I with with all respect for what you just shared, Tanmeet, I'm going to just say that in some ways, the three of us are privileged. We're all physicians, and we maybe haven't struggled the way some people struggle. And so I'm wondering, how does this relate to the work you do with people who have faced trauma or people who are homeless? Because it feels easy for me to talk about dancing or gratitude, breath work, cooking with friends, but obviously that may not be so accessible to others. So can you talk about how this has informed your work with people who have less resource? This is one of the biggest things for me is that joy has become part of my activism work, whereas it used to be separate. And I used to feel that way, Victoria, where I felt like my activism could not have joy linked to it because then Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be, I would be not suffering with the people or I would Mm -hmm. be 
having too good a life or Mm -hmm. frivolously joyful is how it felt. And I now understand that all systems of oppression work to strip us of our power and our humanity. And when we can reclaim joy in our bodies and in our lives in any way that is a our capacity will allow us to, whatever that means for us, anytime we can do that, we are reclaiming who we are and our humanity in that moment. And we have reclaimed some power. And so now I am understanding, actually, it's through my son's illness, thinking that there was no way I could have joy again, that once I really started committing to these practices, I realized that I was healing wounds of racism and oppression from long ago. And now I really work at sort of working with people in terms of liberation, that joy is liberating. It's actually not only possible through trauma, it's almost necessary to reclaim any moments of ease, joy, or hope that you can. When you refer to the people who have suffered trauma. My impression is and experience is that everyone has trauma in their past in one form or another. That's just what I have found. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree. One of the things that I have felt in my life is that great suffering has expanded my capacity for joy. Mm -hmm. It's almost like because I know what the deeper downside is, I know like the range of going down into sorrow and suffering, I can go up higher because I'm so much more appreciative when something joyous occurs. Yeah. And spontaneous happiness, I use the metaphor of a seesaw Ah. to look at at the way our moods work and the downs equal the ups and you can go so far down. You don't want to get stuck though at the Mm -hmm. bottom or probably not at the top either. Yeah, exactly. I really resonate with that. I think that also there's a way in which people will say, well, on a day where I'm so depressed or if you're so depressed or how you're feeling, how would why would gratitude even be useful and or how would you find it and some days i tell them some days i think i only have gratitude that i'm crying and that i'm still <laughs> feeling it <laughs> that i'm still feeling is means that i'm still here i've still yeah. not lost my humanity and my capacity to be alive now i know that it, there is a, this tenuous balance, as Andy, you're referring to, about getting stuck in that too much and how do you keep this going? And that's where these practices really keep you in the seesaw of life. But there is no way to evade pain is the real truth of life. There is no way. And when we know what we're feeling, when we're acknowledging it, when we know how we are feeling and can express that, we are still here. We have not lost our humanity. Mm-hmm. So I want to give you a chance to talk about this because it's so important, just a little bit more. And one of the things that uh, you wrote is you can't positively think your way out of poverty, dangerous situations, or oppression. When others tell you to look on the bright side and you're unable or unwilling to do so, this feels toxic because it is. Your nervous system is hypervigilant of pain, loss, and the attempts of others to dismiss it. So I just really want to give you that chance because, of course, there is the kind of new agey message that you can just put a happy face on it and then it's all okay. Yeah. 
Yeah. There's actually science to show that when we try to suppress our own emotions, we not only dysregulate our nervous systems, we dysregulate others around us, Mm. that we actually raise blood pressure of people around us. And there's the same thing happening when people try to dismiss your emotions and say, just be happy or look on the bright side then we are having our nervous systems further incited by feeling invisible or not seen. I think it is really important to understand this delicate balance. I'm sure you're both maybe, I mean, I think everyone has experienced this. I sure have where people will tell me, particularly in relation to my son, they will say, well, at least you have two other healthy children. Yeah. As if that is supposed to make it okay. And actually, it feels so dismissive. It feels Mm -hmm. so hard to hear. Right. And or I I don't I'm so glad you're strong enough to manage this as if this was some race for spiritual strength of capacity (laughs) when I'm just trying to be a human. Right. I'm not superhuman. So there's this way that if people can understand where we can say something like, I love you. I don't know how this pain feels, but I'm willing to sit here with you in it. I want to be here for you, and I will figure out what way that would look best as we go on. All of that is still acknowledging people's pain and knowing they have to be where they are, but supporting them through it. There is a difference between hey, just think about something good, you'll feel better. I mean, if somebody doesn't want to at that moment or if they can't, that is very harmful, I think. I'm glad you gave some examples of better things to say, because I think a lot of people struggle with this. Like, what is the right thing to say? And then sometimes people retreat and they they feel so unable to know how to be supportive, uh, so unable how to stay in a circle. And it happens all the time. For example, when someone becomes ill with cancer, when someone has a death in their family, and some people just for whatever reason, maybe we're not teaching this well enough in our society, don't know how to show up as just showing up as either witness or companion, knowing there are no right words. (laughs) Yes. And actually, I had family members as well as good friends not call me for a year or two after this diagnosis mm. was really hurtful. And at until it wasn't until I had some sort of sense of how I was going to thrive through this that I could approach them and say, that really hurt me. Why didn't you call me? Why didn't you come? And they all said the same thing. I didn't know what to say, exactly mm-hmm. what you're saying. And I have empathy for that. But I also told them, I said, you say, I love you. You say that I'm here for you. That's all you have to say, but you should say something. (laughs) And I don't know if you remember, Victoria, in the book, I actually even say that people tell me Now, this is one that I think a lot of people say, and it comes from such a beautiful place, but people say, I can't imagine what you're going through. And I think that's true. None of us can step into someone else's shoes. I think that's true. And yet, I think that there's some way that we could understand that imagination is a bridge of justice. It's a bridge of connection. So when I have the strength and the energy, when someone says that to me, I will say back to them, I really wish you would imagine what it feels like for me because you'll know your own pain better. Imagination is how we will all connect at a deeper level. And so there are even ways that we that we say good things that I think mm-hmm. we could even say 
things that are more helpful. Because when someone says, I can't imagine how you're doing this, it just makes me feel excluded. Makes right. me disconnection feel like, instead of connection. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't feel connected yeah. at all. I do want to tell our listeners that if you haven't had a chance to look at Tanmeet's book, Joy is My Justice, it's a beautiful book. And in it, Tanmeet does share the journey she has had with her son, but it's so much bigger than that. (laughs) And there is so much that we can all learn from it. And you're a wonderful storyteller. And so thank you for writing it. I want to change topics though. (laughs) Yeah. I just recently became aware that you are working with ketamine, with mm-hmm. healthcare professionals. And I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about what led you down that path and what you're learning. Psychedelic medicine actually feels full circle for me. It feels mm-hmm. like all of my integrative medicine, plant work, spiritual work within trauma work, integrative mental health. I've been doing a lot of complex mental health in the population I've been caring for, managing complex addiction and mental health conditions. All of that coming full circle with my social justice work really felt like it was just so full circle and right that I pursued certification. And then I'm uh, one of the main researchers on a psilocybin trial at the University of Washington for frontline medical workers, docs and nurses who are burnt out from COVID, um, from the pandemic and caring for patients. And so that's really where I started. And now I'm using ketamine in clinical practice and running groups for healthcare professionals for burnout as well. There was a recent study with ketamine and healthcare professionals and burnout that was really, really quite reassuring and hopeful. And so that's where I've moved into, yeah, with my integrative work. I mean, I'm doing integrative medicine and to me, it's all together. It's all the mm-hmm. same, but yeah. So I've just uh, been doing that for the last few years and it's really been fulfilling. It feels actually, Andy, I hear you talk about psychedelic medicine all the time. And it, I know you've been in this field forever. <laughs> I'm just coming into it in the last few years, but it feels so hopeful. I don't think it's the cure-all for everything. I think there's a lot of hype around it, but I do think there's a lot of hope for a lot of mental health conditions that we have been throwing medications, other kinds of medications at for a long time. I couldn't agree more. And I think I just read that there is legislation in the house that just happened, which may make psychedelics available therapeutically long overdue. Uh, By the way, I don't consider ketamine a psychedelic. It's not a psychedelic chemically or pharmacologically or experientially. It travels with them. And I think it has its uses. But I think mostly now it's functioning as a placeholder until psilocybin especially becomes available, MDMA. And that's got to be happening very soon. Yeah. I think in the next couple of years, I'm hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. Tanmi, you studied psilocybin, which is understandable because psilocybin at this point is only legal within the context of a study or in a few places where it's been decriminalized, but you're using ketamine in practice. What are you noticing in terms of the difference between using the psilocybin within a research study versus having access to legal ketamine? Yeah. Well, I agree with what Andy's saying. And then I also would put an and to that, which is that there's still a way that it is still altered state work. And so there is some real commonality there. I kind of thought ketamine would be only a placeholder until I was able to access psilocybin and MDMA, which I studied in my certification and working in academics. But I have been profoundly impressed, really, honestly. Really? Okay. 
Yeah, I'm impressed with how well it works, how people have been having big shifts. I think it's more that there are people who just have never done altered state work that are finding ways of new insight perspective. There's also some interesting pharmacokinetics around ketamine, around BDNF and ketamine. And so really, really hopeful studies around the neuroplasticity potential of ketamine. And so I I don't know that I will stop using ketamine even after they're accessible only because it allows a variety of choices, first of all, of which one is right for who. But also there's a sustainability aspect of ketamine being much shorter acting and being able to actually offer it. I spend all day with a patient in research trials in psilocybin, which is somewhat not sustainable in our healthcare system. So that's the social justice aspect that I'd like to work on, um, how to make it accessible. But I am actually profoundly impressed with ketamine. And so I hope that I'll still be using it, but we'll see. For our listeners, BDNF. Just let them know. Yeah, what that sorry, is. <laughs> brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is a chemical that we neurochemical that we make ourselves in our brain, but things stimulated and stimulated by exercise, by certain meditative trans, transit states, by curcumin, by many things. <laughs> right. But it is definitely stimulated by ketamine and it has quite the potential for neuroplasticity. What I found find very impressive about the research on psilocybin, especially, is that a single dose, a single session yeah. can produce very long-lasting effects with depression, for example. And I don't hear that about ketamine. I often hear that the effects are short-lasting and it requires frequent treatment. The other comment I would make is the compound that I'm finding most interesting these days is 5-MeO-DMT. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in terms of convenience, that is a 15-minute experience. Yes. And can be Definitely. extremely profound. So that's one I hope will get more play and become more available. Yeah, I agree with that. And I do think psilocybin is more durable for sure than ketamine. And I think, you know, it's so funny because you hear all the naysayers about any of them saying, yeah. well, somebody would have to use it again. I said, well, we are giving people daily yeah, medications. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So. Okay. Well, Tom made earlier on, you talked about your role as an integrative physician and you spanned from dance to plant medicine, integrative mental health, psychedelics. How do psychedelics and joy connect mm. in your current thinking about your work? What I find have found so far is that it they are a catalyst, mm. that they are a catalyst for people to find new perspective in, in particular on their life situation, on their history, on their pain, on their trauma, and actually can be a catalyst to do the practices we're talking about, to actually be motivated to find new ways to manage whatever it is that they're managing in their life, whether it be mental health or um, grieving or so forth, burnout. People will say this all the time. They'll come out of a psilocybin session or even a ketamine and say, I feel like I just did 10 years of therapy mm -hmm. in this one session. And I think that's a true feeling. I resonate with that with my experience as well. And it feels as if there's just a way to shift on a deeper level. And so I think that there's also in the integration phase after a psychedelic journey, there's so much, as we said, neuroplasticity to, to be motivated to make behavior change, to say, I'll try this new meditation practice. I'll try this new gratitude practice. Mm -hmm. And so I think they're just such an important tool in the work around well-being and joy. 
Tanmeet, I have an off-the-wall question for you. <laughs> <laughs> I came across a diagnosis in traditional Chinese medicine of excessive joy, mm. uh, and that's considered a, a pathological condition. What would you say about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, don't you think it's a little bit... I've actually seen that. Don't you think it's akin to mania? Yes, for, I do. Yeah, I do. In our Western... And I do think that's true, right? I mean, I think that there's a way then when we're in that state of excessive joy, I, or as we say, mania, we can I, be impulsive. It's excitement. Yeah. And I think that there is this danger of being too far mm -hmm. on one side for sure. And so I think that they... It just shows how smart and wise these <laughs> ancient systems are, right? That they yeah. knew this all before we labeled ICD-10 codes to them. And the importance of balance. Yes, exactly. I agree. Well, this has been just a wonderful conversation. And I'm so grateful to you, Tanmi, for sharing your rich experience. I'm just wondering if you have a question for Andy or for me that you'd like to ask. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for having, this is just such a beautiful thing to be with two of my mentors who really were at the beginning of all this for me in terms of my integrative medicine training and what I've done with integrative medicine in academics and mm. onward. And so it feels really uh, potent and so grateful to be here. Mm. I am wondering what you two think are the really most exciting or hopeful things happening right now in integrative medicine? I mean, what are you most hopeful for in terms of either where the field can go in academics or what is happening within the clinical aspect? I'm just wondering where you are with that. Well, one thing I'm so proud that our center is doing is we're really training very large numbers of healthcare professionals at this point and the full range of healthcare professionals. And if anyone is listening who is in academia, we have a 200-hour curriculum that's called Integrative Medicine in Residency. It embeds into existing residencies. And we have 116 residencies across the country in a wide range of specialties, family medicine internal medicine, pediatrics, psychiatry, physical medicine, rehabilitation, OBGYN, and soon emergency medicine. Oh, nice. And this means that people are getting integrative medicine training as part of their foundational training as physicians. So I think that's so hopeful. The second thing I'm going to say is that I do think we're on the cusp of very uh, important, I'll use your word, potent, paradigm-shifting therapies. So whether that's psychedelics, which are clearly coming, whether it's being able to change the microbiome in ways mm -hmm. that make diseases really go away, whether it's understanding energy, so these things that stimulate the vagus nerve or microcurrents that help people with pain, these were things that people completely disregarded. The gut meant nothing. <laughs> Electricity meant nothing. And psychedelics were only evil. So here we are with these really revolutionary new therapeutics that I think are going to radically change the way we practice medicine. And I've always said that one day we'll be able to drop the word integrative. It'll just be good medicine. Our healthcare system is in such disarray. It may totally collapse. And what we're doing has to be the foundation of a new system. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I mean, my 
patients would always ask what is integrative medicine. And the first thing I would say is, well, first of all, it's just good family yeah. medicine. And right. then and then I would go on and to explain different things to them. But and I would say if anyone's listening, the integrative medicine and residency program, I couldn't agree more. I did that with my residents for quite a few years, and it was really life changing for some of them. I'm so impressed with how the fellowship has grown. It's just so exciting. I think about where it's come from and how people didn't even know what I was doing. And now it's kind of mainstream to hear the word. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for doing our fellowship and then taking this work out into the world, expanding upon it, making it part of normal, good medicine. (laughs) And for your book and your activism, we're just so grateful to know you and to work with you. Thank you, Tanmeet. And it's been a very enjoyable conversation. Oh, thanks. Thanks to both of you. This was really my pleasure.